you want to remember to uh, be in prayer the rest of today as we have a group at the uh, middle school Majnik. We have, I think it's about 10 folks uh, who are there and uh, they'll be coming back later. So pray for safe trip. Seemed like more than 10 when they were in the office Friday afternoon, <laughs> but that may have just been their mom's cheering. Um, the uh, uh, We prayed earlier, we mentioned um, Timo Sazo, who's, as most of you will know, was an intern here uh, a year ago, and Timo, uh, you want to pray on the 20th, he goes for his ordination exam, uh, the final part in front of the presbytery, and assuming uh, that he passes, which I think he will, uh, he will be ordained October 16th. And Frank Pugh and I will be on that commission um, to ordain him. So please be in prayer for him over the next uh, 10 days. As, uh, that ordination exam is nerve-wracking. There's just no, there's probably some nice way to say it, but it's nerve-wracking. So uh, please pray for Timo as well. Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to the book of First Peter, towards the back of the New Testament. You get to Hebrews, keep going. If you get to Revelation, back up a little bit. And uh, you'll get to 1 Peter, and we are in chapter 1. We're in the second half of chapter 1 today. It's the second sermon in our series. So if you uh, turn there, that would be great. And listen carefully uh, as this is God's Word. 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 25. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us once again 
to the book of 1 Peter to learn more about Christ and how Christ wants us to live. Lord, these are the Holy Spirit's words. This is the living and abiding word of God. These are the words of holiness and of love and of truth. And we need these words, O Lord. They are both true and good, living and active, enduring and eternal. So open our eyes to see them and to understand them and to believe them and to walk in them. So as always, give us the desire to learn from you this morning and help us consider what it means to embrace holiness as it is found in you. And so we pray, speak through the words of the Apostle Peter this morning and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Pressure is a way of life in America. Hopefully that's not new news for anyone. One of the greatest pressures on those who would follow Christ is how to stick to our convictions when everything appears to be working against us. Basic to Christian belief is the fact that this world is abnormal. Since the fall of Adam and Eve, We've lived in a less than perfect world. The Garden of Eden can't be found anymore, at least not in this life. So it shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody that things don't often go as they should. Now, some of these pressures are called temptations, and they can come from within ourselves or from outside sources, but they lead us to do things we know we shouldn't do. Other pressures are for us to conform to the world and the world's views and the world's values that are contrary to Christ and to what we've committed our lives to as his followers. They can be cultural forces trying to make us into something that God doesn't want for us. Or these pressures can simply come from the fear of being viewed as someone who is rocking the boat or trying to swim against the current. And so we're told, go along and get along. Don't be different. Blend in. Do what everybody else is doing. Sounds like school kids, right? Those same pressures still show up in the neighborhood, in the marketplace, on the sports field. But is it? I don't think so. Look at what Jesus said when he prayed for us in John 17. He said, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So here we have Jesus telling us to be in the world, we're to be out there in the marketplace, involved in the neighborhood, not isolated from others, just because they might not believe the same things we do. But at the same time, Jesus says we are not of the world. We are not to be the same as everybody. We are to be different. That means we should act differently. We should talk differently. We should think differently. With Christ in our lives, we should be living in such a way that Christ would not be embarrassed to be with us. And most of us would agree with that. However, most of us would also have to admit 
that there are times when we just as soon not have Christ around to hear uh, what we say or to see how we act, let alone to know what we think. Why? Because being different is hard. It's not easy. We don't usually want the attention that being different attracts. Why not? Because none of us are perfect. None of us lives up to Christ's standards all the time. We all blow it from time to time. And no one likes to screw up in front of other people, especially people who know we're supposed to be different. But we do. Living differently is hard. Living differently can be embarrassing. Living differently can blow up in our face. And yet, that's what the book of 1 Peter is telling us to do. The Apostle Peter's thesis is this. The followers of Jesus Christ are strangers in their own homeland. To be born again into a living hope is to become a foreigner in the land of one's birth. Without moving from one country to another, without crossing any political or regional boundaries, Christians become resident aliens. The impact of the gospel is that because of Christ, believers re-enter their home culture as immigrants, as foreigners, as aliens, who for all practical purposes are now strangers without status, even if it's their home culture. I know it's not this culture is not the home culture for everybody, but for most of you. And what that means is Christ's followers become exiles without being deported, immigrants without immigrating, and foreigners without traveling to a foreign country. Believers are resident aliens by virtue of their faith in Christ. Now, admittedly, our culture today is very, very different from Peter's. The original recipients of 1 Peter inhabited a radically different context uh, from our own. We don't live under Roman imperial rule. Slave labor is not the driving force of our economy. Women are not under patriarchal domination in our culture as much as they once were. Our society has changed. But what is now beyond dispute, I think, is that Western culture remains in opposition to God's will and hostile to the way of Jesus. The imperial Caesar has been replaced by the imperial self. The Pax Romana has been replaced by the American dream. Western capitalism still trades in bodies and souls. And culture obsesses over sexual freedom and material indulgence. Idolatry is pervasive. Autonomous, or now called expressive individualism, is now the ideal. All of which stands against the gospel. And so 1 Peter serves essentially as the outsider's guide to the Christian life. Peter is addressing people who are suffering for their faith, but surprisingly, Peter's letter is not a letter of comfort. It's rather one filled with marching orders to scattered believers. 
Peter is laying out what it means to live as a believer in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what you're facing, and uh, no matter what human powers are in control. And rather than living as one controlled by the self-oriented passions of your former life, Peter says you're called not only to obey the Lord, but to be holy as he is holy. And that's where we start today, verses 13 through 16, with holiness and God. Holiness and God. If you have the outline from our website, that'll be the first blank. See, when Christ returns, he's going to fill your life with special blessings from God, starting at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You notice verse 13 begins with the word, therefore. And what do we always ask when we see therefore? What's the therefore, therefore? That's right. And what Peter is saying is is simply this. In light of everything I've said in verses 1 through 12, remember about being born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Therefore, here's how I want you to live. Now, the late Dr. Ed Clowney, who's a PCA pastor and professor, uh, he once said, the imperatives of Christian living always begin with therefore. That's hopeful. The imperatives, the commands to obey, to live a holy life, always begin with therefore. In light of the promises and the gifts of God and his grace, in light of what Jesus has done, therefore... Here's how I want you to live. Now, all the practical implications of this call to holiness, to be honest, are impossible for every one of us. I have no ability to transform my own heart. I have no independent ability to escape the sin that still lives in me. I have no autonomous power to harness my thoughts and desires. I have just as much ability to be holy as God is holy as I have to jump high enough to touch the top of the Washington Monument. So this high and holy calling is an argument not only for our desperate need for right here, right now grace, but also for the humbling fact that we will never be graduates of God's grace. Look at what Peter says here. Now, you may be thinking, you know, times are hard right now. And for some of you, times are difficult. They were in Peter's time too. But look at what he says. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. The grace that will be brought to you. Grace is coming your way. Grace, God's unmerited favor, loving kindness, steadfast love, regardless of your situation or circumstances, you don't deserve it, but God delights to give it. He delights to give grace to you. Grace defines 
who he is. It's a product of his character. And Peter says this grace will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter wants his people to maintain a loose grip on this world and a tight grip on the world to come. We've already begun to share in the salvation of God, but it's not complete yet. We live in the already and the not yet. And the day is coming when we will see Christ, be with Christ, share in his glory, and receive the full gift of his grace. You may be suffering now. It may be unjust. But Christ is coming, and when he does, his justice will be established on the earth. All accounts will be settled and the full gift of grace will be yours. And knowing that, how should that affect how we live? Well, then Peter begins by addressing the present. He tells them, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Most of us don't talk like that. He's reminding them, don't be conformed to the ways of the world, to your old passion, to the things that dominated your life before you came to know Christ. He's saying that you can live differently now because you are holy. Look again at verses 15 and 16. These are the key verses in the whole passage. He says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy teaches us a number of things. First of all, God is holy. Second, it teaches us that we can be holy. In fact, it says we shall be holy. It doesn't say you can be holy. It says you shall be holy. You must be holy. And third, we shall be holy because God is holy. There's no hope for holiness otherwise. So let's spend a few moments thinking about what all that is, what all that means. Peter is quoting from the book of Leviticus. Chapter 19, verses 1 and 2 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. This quote actually appears five times in the book of Leviticus. And what the word holiness uh, really means is if you want to revere God as holy, if you want to understand him as holy, if you want to see him as holy, You have to see him as infinitely above and beyond you and me. The Bible tells us that what makes him God is not that he's powerful, not that he's wise, not that he's loving, but that his power is holy power, his love is holy love, and his wisdom is holy wisdom. Now, again, we can be easily intimidated by this word, holy. We may know a lot about it or a little about it and how we're supposed to live as followers of Christ, but we all know that we don't usually feel holy. Holy sounds like something special, something unique, something different from us. And that's partially true. Holy is something different from who we used to be and how we used to live. In actuality, it simply means set apart. God has made us new. God has made us to be different. God has set us apart for himself. God has made us holy. And this newness, this holiness, is a description of who we are, even more than it is a description of how we act. 
because holiness is one of what we call God's communicable attributes, part of God's character that he has chosen to share with us. So there are incommunicable attributes, like God is omnipresent, he is everywhere. We don't share that. But the communicable attributes, like love, is things that he shares with us. And holiness is one of those. God has, in some ways you could say, exported his character to us. And like grace, holiness defines who God is. It's a product of his character. However, holiness and grace are not the same thing. Don't get them confused. God gives us grace. God makes us holy. And because God makes us new and sets us apart, makes us holy, you can be different. And you can be different because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's our second point, holiness and Christ, verses 17 to 21. Holiness and Christ. So if you would look there, that'd be great. It says, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Simply put, Peter says, if we call on God as Father, this God who judges indiscriminately, penetratingly, absolutely honestly, then we had better live in reverent fear of this God, for he is altogether holy and he will judge justly. Furthermore, if there is a God, and if the God of Israel and Jesus are the one true God, and if this God is altogether holy, it follows this God must judge if he's going to allow anyone into his presence. He cannot tolerate sin, for sin is repulsive to his character, to his holiness. So knowing that, that God is judge, and that he judges with absolute justice, to drive us to live in fear and awe of him. Now, this fear is not dread or anxiety, but the healthy response of a human being before an altogether different kind of being, a holy God. It's actually a sign of spiritual health. So do we live differently because we're going to face judgment someday? Peter says that's true, but that's not the real reason. So what's the real reason? Well, Peter isn't finished motivating us yet. If God's character won't capture us for holiness, and if God's judgment won't uh, scare us into the pursuit of holiness, perhaps a reflection on the preciousness of Jesus' sacrifice will compel us to live lives worthy of our calling. Last week in the first part of the chapter, we saw that Peter told these people and us that to God, we're more precious than mere gold. And that God is refining you through these fiery trials. He's allowing the heat to come into your life so one day he can look at your life and see Christ in you. God's desire is to see the reflection of his son in your life. Now, 
Peter is telling them and us that not only are we more precious to God than mere gold, but even more than that, Christ is more precious to God than mere gold. And therefore, Christ should be more precious to us than mere gold. Peter says this because we've been saved from the futile ways that we used to have. He says that conformity to the world is an empty way of life. And now we have a new way of life, a different life, an abundant life, a full life centered in Christ and what he did for us. And to move from the futile way of life to a new full life required a payment. And God paid a ransom for this purchase, a redemptive price. And this is the price that had to be paid to free a slave, a redemption price. So Peter says, verses 18 and 19, that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And as a result, we now belong to God, redeemed, set free from the power of sin and death, since the price paid was worth uh, far more than mere silver or gold. We should be grateful to God for our new life, our relationship to him, and thus we're able to live differently because of what Christ has done. I love the way Peter elevates the work of Christ. There's an irony here in the precious metals that he chooses to call perishable, silver and gold. These are earth's most precious metals, the most lasting. But Peter makes them sound like fruit that's been left out too long. The precious blood of Jesus is precious indeed. Truly, we were bought with a price. Peter says we were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And referring to Christ as a lamb without blemish or spot, he is taking us back to the Old Testament, the celebrations of Passover and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Commemorated at Passover is the occasion where the angel of death passed over the homes on which the doorposts were marked with the blood of the lamb. And when God saw the mark of the blood on a doorpost, his judgment passed by. God told the Israelites never to forget what he had done. And so this very celebration of Passover reaches its fulfillment in our celebration of the Lord's Supper, in which we remember Jesus' words, this is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the remission of sins. And on the Day of Atonement, the blood of an animal was taken by the high priest into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled on the mercy seat on the throne of God as a covering for the sins of the people. And that pointed to the one whose blood was precious. Not because of a divinely commanded ritual, but because the blood had inherent value. And now Peter gets to the heart of our salvation. How can we as sinners be drawn to the holiness of God? And the answer is through redemption. Unless God has made us, we could not gain his holiness or we wouldn't even want it. But God has claimed us as his own, claimed us at a tremendous cost. And Peter appeals to two of the most profound emotions that we can know. One is love, 
a love that sees the price that God paid to redeem us, and the other is fear, a fear of despising God's love. What judgment would we merit if we were to trample upon the blood of Christ and treat God's precious ransom with contempt, a contempt that mere gold and silver would deserve in comparison. We would get what we deserve, but instead we get grace because we have been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. And the way God has chosen to reveal himself to us, to reveal such a great salvation is by and through his word, which brings us to our third point, which is holiness and truth. Holiness and truth, starting at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Peter is telling us that believers are redeemed from their empty and guilty past. They're bound to the Lord and also to one another. Their holiness flames uh, not only in devotion to God, but also in a sincere brotherly love, verse 22. Peter has exhorted us to the holiness of God. He has affirmed the redeeming grace of his son Jesus. And as a result, he urges us to love one another and tells us that this holiness is seen in love, is actually grounded in God's truth, in God's word, and what God has said. God's word renews, cleanses, and matures us for holiness, exemplified in love for one another. So love and truth, which are so often set at odds in contemporary Christianity, are bound together by Peter. Clearly, Peter requires love for one another as a mark of holiness. He's not satisfied with acceptance. He's not satisfied with tolerance. He will have love. It says a sincere love without pretense or hypocrisy. But even sincerity is not a love, is not enough. He says our love must be earnest. Peter uses a word that means stretched or strained. The same word was used to describe the prayer of Christ at Gethsemane in Luke 22, where it said, "Being and being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood fall, falling to the ground. Peter is telling us that we are to love as deeply as Christ prayed. We are to love as deeply as Christ prayed. And we can love one another like this, earnestly, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Peter compares being born to being born again. Through the life-giving power of the word of God, it is the seed of life sown in our hearts which creates new spiritual life. God's word is creative. He speaks and it is done. He commands and it stands fast. The word of God uh, 
that has given us life is abiding. Some versions say enduring. It's not subject to decay or change. God's eternal word creates eternal life. Our physical life is no more permanent than the grass of the field. But the life that God gives is more than physical. It is the life of the Spirit. Now, I know most of you have watched the news this week. The world just lost a queen. Not our queen, but a queen nonetheless. Which means sometimes here in the near future, we're going to see the coronation of a king. And there's been so much written about this, so much uh, posted about Elizabeth II, it's hard to keep up. But one of the coolest things I've gotten to see this week is very old pictures, very old footage from her coronation back in 1952. And near the very end, she was presented with a Bible. And I don't know who the bishop was who gave it to her. Clearly, I mean, I think he was a bishop. He had all the bishop stuff on. But he gave it to her and he said, and this was very clear, this is the most precious thing that this world affords. He handed her a Bible. When God spoke to his people back in Deuteronomy, some of you remember Deuteronomy, we spent a few weeks there. But Moses pointed out in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. God cannot be comprehended by the imagination of the human mind. That is why ours is a liturgy of listening. He speaks to us. We hear him. We do not see him. We're not focused in, uh, in on uh, images or outward forms, but on scripture, on his words, teaching its truth and applying its insights that best reflect the scripture itself. Our preaching is the appointed means of proclaiming the message of that scripture, following the text, expounding the text, and it drives all who hear to attend closely to the text. Peter is convinced of the power of the preached word. That power is the power of God for the gospel. Romans 1.16 is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The New Testament, therefore, views preaching as God in action. Preaching is not merely a word about God and his redemptive acts, but it is a word of God and is in and of itself a redemptive act. Peter is telling us that God's word is the source of truth and we all should be getting our instruction from the same source. But hearing God's word isn't enough. It has to be embraced and applied. There is nothing automatic about being exposed uh, to the message on Sunday morning. Everybody here hears the same thing. But unless your ears are open and you're really listening and as you attend closely to the text, your heart is prepared uh, to worship God and listen to his word, unless all that happens, nothing much will actually happen to you or in you. One person can sit and listen to the truth and it can change their life in a moment. 
and someone sitting right next to them hearing the exact same message can go right on living in open rebellion against the will of God. Now, I've been doing this long enough to know that most of you are not going to have your lives dramatically changed every time I preach. I don't expect that. I don't expect that your life will be radically different because of what I say every time you walk through those doors. But I also know that God's word is powerful in and of itself. And I do expect that the cumulative effect of hearing and applying God's word over time, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, will change your life. You will be different because of this time. As the word of God is consistently applied to your everyday life over a long period of time. Now let me say, you're not here, I hope, uh, just to listen to Dave or Frank. You're here to meet with God and to hear from him and to worship him. And it takes your whole being to do that, body and soul, mind, will, and emotions. There's a reason we have a long music set at the beginning of the service. It takes your mind away from the cares of life. It directs your attention towards God and his word. It prepares you to focus on God and listen to what he has to say. So if you expect to hear from God and be affected by God's word when you come here, it actually starts with the first note of the music. Not when I walk up to the pulpit. The instructions of 1 Peter are grounded in the reality of this new birth, of being born again, of what we call our conversion, our redemption. Holiness is anchored in the God who made us his children, and the lives of reverent fear are based on the God who sent his son as a sacrificial lamb and raised him from the dead for us. Now, the first two sections of this text describe the vertical aspect of the Christian life, namely our relationship with God, holiness and God, holiness uh, and Christ. But the third section, holiness and the truth, turns us to the horizontal side, our relationship with one another. Yet it too is framed by the reality of our salvation, that when we were born again, we were purified, cleansed from our sins. Now, today's a big date in our country. Not just the Palme's anniversary. But we, things come to mind when you say 9-11. Most people immediately think of where you were on 9-11. I was in my basement. At that time, uh, our, my basement served as the church office. And I was watching on TV as the terrorists flew planes into the t Twin Towers. And as we watched this horror and evil unfolding before our very eyes, the course of our nation's life was altered. And after that point, every year on 9-11, there are posts online on every imaginable social media that start out with, never forget. I've already seen several this morning. And the idea is that we would never forget those moments and how we felt on that day. 
that we would never forget what our nation went through, which brought us to a time of coming together. Peter is saying as Christians, we must never forget. In our present daily struggles, in our situations, in our circumstances, no matter how difficult, we never forget what God has done for us. Peter calls these believers and us to remember what happened to us that has altered, that has changed the course of our lives. Peter wants his readers to realize that the living and abiding word of God is identical with, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Whenever the spoken message correctly exposits gospel truth and the meaning of the biblical text, it's connected to the eternal truths of God, and it is eternal. And to drive this point home about the value of God's living and abiding word in the life of the believer, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40. He says, all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Some of you are familiar with that. Some of you will remember that when Dave Doris was here, that's how he ended his reading of the scripture. Many pastors do. And Peter is just quoting a phrase out of Isaiah 40, but he means to summon the entire chapter, which is an entire prophecy to mind, a prophecy that it would have been very familiar to his Jewish Listeners, those who are familiar with the book of Isaiah know the first 39 chapters are full of God's displeasure over uh, Israel's idolatry, which results in their exile. But then in chapter 40, the whole tone shifts. The opening lines fall like rain in the desert. Isaiah 40 opens with comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. It's not until verse 8 of Isaiah 40 that we get to Peter's quoted text. And by then we're immersed in the declaration of the eternal faithfulness of God, the God who condescends to gather his exiled children And to lead them, he says, as a shepherd, Isaiah 40, verse 11. And Peter is now writing to the elect exiles. He's writing to exiled people to give them comfort and encouragement. To give them guidance, to direct them towards holiness. And he invokes this ancient message which was written for people in exile a long time ago to give them comfort and encouragement. And by choosing to quote this particular passage, Peter says, in essence, this is not the first time the people of God have gone into exile. And it will not be the last time that the God of all comfort shows up strong and mighty to save. Peter chooses an Old Testament prophecy of the Good Shepherd who we know is Christ, who identifies himself that way in John 10, tenderly leading his flock. This would have been a timely word to his original hearers. It is no less a timely word to us today. In the midst of a culture that grows increasingly hostile to our beliefs, we can easily forget the comfort of a future inheritance. We're habitually prone to concern ourselves with the perishable, 
We devote our energies to what we'll eat, to what we'll wear, laboring to fill storehouses with that uh, which rusts and is eaten by moths. We take great pains to preserve a youthful appearance of a body that is faithfully declaring to us that we are amidst and a vapor. With every wrinkle we gain and every gray hair we have, some of us more than others. But we fight against it. We say, no, I'm not perishing. I'm eternal. Behold the work of my hands. And we have no time for things of eternal significance so absorbed we can be in the pleasures and cares of this world, which is most certainly passing away. And what are the things of eternal significance for which we have no time? The daily opportunities to love one another earnestly from a pure heart, deeply and fervently as God has loved us. There is a reason we remind people at every funeral that naked we came from our mother's womb and naked we shall return to dust. We quote ashes to ashes, dust to dust for a reason to remind us of who we are. And the gold and silver that will remain when the last fiery trial of death has passed will be the earnest love that we have invested toward God and toward others. Those are the treasures that we store up in heaven. The more focused we are on the perishable, the more diminished will be our ability to invest in the imperishable. But the seed of the imperishable living and abiding word of God calls us to live lives of eternal consequence. Lives characterized by earnest love for each other, even when we walk through trials and testing, suffering and rejection. Will we exiles have comfort in this life? Maybe, maybe not. But comfort comes to those who hope in that which is imperishable, unfading, undefiled, and kept in heaven for you. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Thank God for that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, Thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you. We confess our failure to see your holiness, let alone to want it for ourselves. Sometimes we still act as people who think holiness is too hard, too far away, not for this life. And yet you promise to give us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And so by your grace, we ask that you would enable us to come to you as holy. Enable us to remember that you have declared us holy, that you are making us holy. And grant that we may live as people who reflect your holiness so that we may trust your promises on our worst days. And work in each of our hearts this fall as we learn from the Apostle Peter to embrace our status as exiles as strangers in a strange land, as those who are born again through the living and abiding word of God. And so by the power of your Holy Spirit, draw us ever closer to the one who is most holy. 
your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, as the eternal and everlasting King, lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. God bless you. I'll see you in two weeks.